destroying the entire universe. Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixundraconis fan podcast broadcasting from a post-demos orbit on Object 17 Voltaire Station. This week is episode 56 of Radio Free Demos, Spyglass Town. This week's episode is sponsored by Desperation setting in on day three. What do they know? What do they know? So this week we're going to be focusing mostly on Spyglass and life in a Spyglass town, so I figured I'd start the episode with a question for my hosts, and with me this week are Wines, Ashtar... Whitey, and I'm Corbo. And my question for you is, uh, where did you hide the body? Well, as a hyena, the cafeteria line. Oh, yay. I'm having a strong sense of deja vu. <laughs> I may have actually used this question last week. Oh, well. Ashtar. Wow, my answer's pretty similar. I stuffed it in a uh, new meat crate and sent it down to the starving artists. Okay. I hid it in the 18th century European novel section of the library. Ingenious. I just put it in the back of the coat closet like everything else I'm trying to hide. They don't come out. (laughs) Okay, yeah, the layers. Oh, man, actually, that gives me an interesting idea of just thin slicing and then placing into five or six hundred old DVD cases. (laughs) No one would ever look. It's like like a a manual CAT scan. Oh, no, no. Add like a shellac finish and you can actually make it into one of those picture laser discs. That's an interesting idea. But edible-ish, sort of, depending on the body. I mean, if it's a, someone's body, maybe that's a bad idea, but if it's like a, you know, a cat or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a cat could be someone, too. I guess. But that was one of the more amazing exhibits at the uh, museum up in Chicago. It was a human body, which they had made into thin slices, just in panes of glass, so you could watch, look at it from... Have you seen this? I have not. But, but can you imagine it? And is it gross? And the answer is yes. I can imagine it. <laughs> we went to that exhibit, something like that exhibit, when it traveled through town. That was the life forms? Yeah, the ones the, where they're like saturated in wax and something it, like that. Th- that was their plasticizing the circulatory system. Yeah. Oh, those are really cool sculptures. Yeah, yeah. But not when they start disintegrating over time. This is true. That's just kind of sad. The exhibits where they just pull out the nervous system is pretty cool, too. You're just like a jellyfish in a meat sack. <laughs> it's kind of like how I feel most of the time. Just this kind of cloud of like slightly blue fibrous nerves. With well, that should be reinsuring then. Yeah. That's mostly everything you are. Boy, how can anything that big hide for so long a time? Yeah. I wonder what their next move will be. So there was something new on the horizon from HSD, and I'd forgotten to get the fine details of it in time for our recording session tonight, but I'll try and post it in the show notes. Do you remember in D&D 4th Ed where they had this, the like easy play supplement that we actually kind of really fell for and enjoyed? Oh, right, the, with the kind of streamlined character classes. Yeah, like edition four and a half. Yeah. It sounds like Sev is getting ready to launch something like that for HSD, like a separate edition, but just an alternate version of the character creation rules that are a little more streamlined. And I forget what it's called, which is unfortunate. But kind of the idea is that the party sits down at the beginning and decides whether to go down this streamlined path, which sounds a little bit more character classy, or whether to go the more complex uh, character design route. So is this going to let us basically go, we want to do an espionage campaign, or we want to do a save the world campaign, or we want to all be accountants? Well, this would let a somewhat random group of players actually sit down and play at like a game store on a evening or a weekend okay, that'd be nice too. or at a convention. Yeah. Whereas con- currently yeah. Not, not a pickup game is yeah. not a pickup game. Well, yeah. Now every time I try to run it at a con, it's been, I need to design characters beforehand and have like right. eight of them so right. I can get this group of four people together to go, hi, do you want to play the, uh, I don't know. Well, that's, that's really all pickup games though. They all run like that, don't they? Yeah, they do. But then everyone wants to play their own fursena, and it's a mess. And then they're really mad at me when they die in brutal ways because right, I have a right. thing against people trying to play their own fursenas. Yeah, or little paper dolls. So, that's so true. No, remember a decent 
Well, when we did the playtest D&D 5th Ed thing and they stepped you through the characters, it's D&D character generation is pretty damn simple. Yeah, 5th Ed in particular and that version of 5th Ed in particular, particular. Yeah. Well, a lot of the really strong level-based systems are because when you're first level, you just don't have much. Yeah, you're so easy. So they just layer it. Every time you level, you add a bunch more complexity. Uh-huh. Something like HSD, you basically have to front load everything because even as you're leveling, you're not necessarily adding a bunch of like new systems or new mechanics. I mean, you're deepening your point pool. With, with V2, you start with a amount of experience to spend and we could technically start players at effectively level zero, which is kind of where D and D does where you don't have experience points to spend and then add the complexity as you go. I didn't even get to start that suggestion before my table shouted me down. Well, also also starting with zero XP means everyone has the same stats. Yeah. Everyone is very similar, except for skills. Now, skills are incredibly important, um, but... It is you you build your character just slower, and... I suspect we'd have really regretted it, because HSD, as written, you start at really not much... You, like, got more money than the average person, but not a lot more skill. I mean, HSD traditionally has been fairly, like, street level at day one. And this would be starting you basically as an NPC day one. Well... Actually, it's slightly, slightly lower than an NPC day one. character. Yeah. Would you like ketchup with that burger, sir? <laughs> Space burger, love. Space you burger. certainly could do it with a couple of different scenarios that spring to mind. I mean, the party waking up at a bunch of cloning tanks is one. No experience, no differentiation. Oh my God, walking like in Saturday night ways. all over again. You're walking in for day one of training huh. mm-hmm. at anywhere. I like that. That's a very paranoia sort of approach. Yeah, yeah. You're trapped at the top of a mountain, survive before you uh, reach the bottom. I mean, that's one option. Uh, get out of the space station alive. That's another one. Let's go badly. You're surrounded by naked cloned foxes. What do you do? Let's just... Okay, stop <laughs> the campaign. <laughs> it went to a bad place. Naked cloned foxes. Throw a bone out and watch them all kill each other for it. Or, well, they're foxes. Oh, now we need the sound effects. Where are they now? <laughs> okay, so rewinding a little bit. Seb is talking about releasing a supplement of streamlined character creation. Yeah, your name is this a good thing? Yeah, it sounds good to me. Yep. It's a good thing. Yes. <laughs> Character creation is really one of those things that only happens once for most people. If you're already struggling trying to get people into the lore and the mechanics of HSD, streamline the character creation so they get in, kind of involved, invested in, um, definitely helps from the beginning. But it's also a really big boon to GMs. If you have a much more streamlined character creation, you can start creating NPCs that are more character-like instead of just top-down, like, creating people out of cloth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the walk them slowly to the deep end rather than diving in head first. Okay, so basically we're waiting for our preview copies, Ev. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Please, I want this. <laughs> hey, Ash, it's a chance to start over again with no equipment. <laughs> I'm just teasing. No, no, I, I love this idea. <laughs> Do you remember where I like... <laughs> no, no, we, we like both the bullets we found so far and we don't want to give them up. <laughs> Hey, you shot one of them. No, I just pressed it into somebody. I didn't want to lose it. I keep it on a chain. Don't scuff it. <laughs> We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. Getting into Spyglass again, last week we talked a little bit about Spyglass lore, how it fits in the world, and this week we're going to talk about uh, some of the characters we meet there, maybe the structure and weirdness of a Spyglass city, and some of the more metaphors kind of around it. Spyglass is complicated. (laughs) I think one of the central metaphors you end up with in a Spyglass setting is these sort of layers of fractal It's a fractalization of layers of layers. Yeah, thank you. It's, It's a complex, it's like French pastry. Hmm. What is it? 206 layers, uh, pastry, dough, and butter. Yeah, and that's a spyglass town. So next week we're going to talk about... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got the emergency lighting on to put us in a spyglass frame of mind. Okay, yeah. The room is lit with red, so my notes are somewhat illegible at this point. They were anyway. I do my part. So spyglass tends to have a lot of decentralized structure. Um, this, the corporation does not mastermind the cities. The people kind of build inwards and explore. The structure is so decentralized that you would be forgiven if you thought that there just wasn't any. Yeah, yeah. 
There was a book series I read a while ago. I believe it was the Pit Dragon series by an uh, author I don't remember. But one of the big cities in that was uh, it was a giant city basically built of mirrors with streets and, uh, intentionally confusingly laid out. Yeah. Uh, where the only people who had a map of the city were those who had lived there long enough to memorize it or those who had drawn it themselves or the original city planners who were long since dead and buried the maps out in the middle of a desert. Or the deaf. Or the deaf. Disgusting. And, wait, I got that totally backwards. Damn, I would have been clever. The blind? No, it's really the compelling, blind. Thank though. you, thank you. <laughs> the deaf. <laughs> <laughs> what? And that's one thing we know about uh, spyglass architecture and spyglass spaceships is you'll never see a diagram of the entire ship in one place. It just doesn't exist. If it is, hmm. it's probably deeply, fatally flawed somewhere and everything leads to the chompers. Now, <laughs> now we have that. <laughs> and there's just weird stuff piled up in strange corners of a spyglass fortress you might find oh there's the printer fact it's right behind the ladies room for no clear reason things are there to be discovered things are there to be unpacked things are there to be used by the community how they choose to use it but they aren't necessarily explained so yeah again pastry workshop on level 45 right next to the armaments i'm i skipped lunch <laughs> i'm gonna be on food for a while <laughs> you know, imagining like a 25 layer of teflon jacketed bullet with butter oh Teflon so, so, butter, since we keep talking about pastry. Okay. So the question is, when the, when the bullet's fired and it's heated up, does it smell really good before it hits mm-hmm. someone? Well, that brief whiff of burning fat. No, I wouldn't think so. It's salted butter, though. Kerbo's being literal. <laughs> and we will be back after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so let's briefly talk about subsidiaries. I started talking about subsidiaries with Marsco, which Marsco has a dozen subsidiaries. They list them out in places. And there's less and less of that as the corporations go on. Marsco actually charters them, though. Yeah, it's part of their business plan. But I think it's also part of Spyglass's business plan. At least it was in the early days. Uh, one thing we know about Spyglass history is that right at the front, they had a number of spin-offs, spin-offs, Progenitus being the best known of them. But in the early days of Spyglass, they were kind of being subtle, kind of hiding their background, doing more infiltration, as opposed to wearing a big, snidely whiplash flag now and saying, we're evil and we twist our mustaches, and so do you. Now they probably can't hide in plain sight as easily. Although, they could charter a small group of misfits to to infiltrate other companies for them. Or, well, everybody's laughing at the uh, Spyglass folks that are dancing around in long black capes and funny little uh, white masks. The real spyglass is going on where you're not watching. They're dressed like clowns. No one will suspect. Not clowns. Little old ladies. Yes. I was going more for like, you know, anonymous Guy Fawkes type of thing. No, I got it. I got it. Yeah, the white mask. Yeah. It does seem like there's some major subdivisions of spyglass out there. There's clearly some sort of research and development communication technology going on. Not clowns. I, I, I dropped the clowns thing. That was like hours ago. I am so off of clowns now. And it does seem like they're one of the probably more heavily armed corporations out there. Like They de- definitely have some thumbs in the weapons industry because they're able to kind of keep track of that and make sure it's developing at a pace they appreciate. But they're also more heavily armed in kind of the same way that Texas is more heavily armed. They're not really organized. They're just really heavily armed. Yeah, but they, again, they do a lot of the same thing that ASR does of kind of slowing the progress of technology with unveiling secrets and things like that. If they don't have a... R&D division for weapons, they, it's a place where they definitely maintain a lot of intelligence work. They may not have an R&D for weapons, but they certainly always seem to have a lot of the really best tech. That's, that's true. And they look good while, while using it. Some of them. I think that really gets a little bit to the root of why Spyglass is kind of one of the last megacorps that we talk about, though. A lot of the power that exists within HSD universe is the power of organization. That's the power of corporations. That's the power of pretty much anything is large amounts of people or large amounts of money that are organized. They're able to work in concert and work together for the same goals. And Spyglass doesn't necessarily have that. They're fractured. They're kind of doing whatever the individual cells or the individual people are working at. And while they kind of have some high-level ideals that they tend to agree on and tend to kind of push towards together, they don't really have an organization that keeps them moving that way. I think they fund a lot of smaller groups a lot. Like they have a distributed mesh, a distributed network of informants and things like that. This is, I think that's part of their business model is having the right person in the right place at the right time and knowing the person's price points, how to buy them. Mm-hmm. 
So they benefit by having like PC level informants all over the place. And that the business model is buying and selling secrets. Yes, absolutely. So there's a certain amount of like internal plausible deniability. And this is similar to CJ Sherry, I believe. Sherry. Sherry. Have um, we talked about her before? We have talked about her before <laughs> at length. Take a drink. These are books that you could probably find a dozen of anyway. Um, but one of the races there, the, the kind of the monkey race that was coming in from the beginning, like their strategy was they would uh, send um, ambassadors to different people, but they would send multiple ambassadors. And each ambassador was had a different strategy and had different funding. <laughs> and so they were always competing against themselves. But the only one that they officially recognized was the one that actually came back successfully. Oh. So Spyglass, is even with the players, the players might run into three or four different factions within Spyglass that all are trying to get the same information or the same aim out of the players or what have you, present different plans. But the only one that the, they're going to kind of retroactively authorize the ones that actually work to move forward as the spike last aim. It's the we meant to do that principle. Right. Yeah. Make sure the ones you like are the successful ones. They'll, they'll be the ones that count. It, Spyglass is known to be extremely hands-off, more so even than Pulse. And maybe this is kind of the broadest picture that's what they do, is they wait to see if something does burst into useful flower and then kind of pick it and say, yeah, we meant to do that. Of course we did, and then give them more funding. But if you're looking at it in terms of like giving people personal freedom, it's not that bad a gig, you know, compared to, say, Progenitus and their more authoritarian style. I don't think it's as self-serving as this idea of kind of the dark corporation is. I mean, it's ultimately self-serving. They're a corp. But compared to some of the other corporations, it's it's nicely hands-off. It has kind of a streak of, um, what's her name? Ayn Rand? Individual exceptionalism? Like, the individual, if they unfetter themselves, can do anything type of thing? Mm-hmm. And Spyglass kind of has and kind of attracts the type of people that hold that. They don't need the shacklings of a corporation to support. Just give them some resources and let them go, and they'll go get the mission, make the mission happen. It also does nicely fall back onto the plausible deniability you were talking about, as if something doesn't pan out, they can just go, no, our employees were acting on their own. They weren't one of ours. So it's just a rogue agent. Yeah. Last week we touched on this a bit, but um, I was just, just, sorry. Just as a, as a quick aside, that was a, a, a great. I was reading the Expanse novels recently, and the the wonderful political lady. At one point, she she talks to one of her underlings, and says, "I want you to monitor everything so and so does." But he's like, are you asking me to wiretap him? He's like, no, no, I want you to monitor everything. I only care about what this person says, and also I want this to have been your idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Corbo, go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, last time we were talking briefly about kind of the overlap in style of Pulse and um, and Spyglass, because they're both fairly small, lean corporations, fairly individualistic, and just fairly weird. <laughs> I've been thinking about it, and I think that they have sort of similar values where, like structurally, like in a, spy, in a Pulse town, the people go out and they find the place to have the meeting, or they explore the territory and put it to use but they do it on an individual level or as competition whereas in spyglass they go out and explore the lands and the and the grounds and they put it to corporate or corporate corporate cooperate use cooperative use but it's kind of it's a similar structure they allow a lot of freedom and expression but for spyglass it's really aimed at the community whereas for pulse it's kind of the opposite right it's pers- very personal they're kind of like flips of the same thing in spyglass you have a village and pulse you have followers you have having followers and pulse no but i, I see where you're going it's, <laughs> in one in one people come together and the other they kind of go off on their own and do the lone ninja thing more so than not you don't have you have allies briefly in pulse maybe you don't, you don't have mm-hmm. a community so much i don't know you have influencers whose aims temporarily align in the making of money and promoting themselves Coming back to, to CJ Cherry, which it makes me so happy. <laughs> At one point, the, the the lion people, the the Hanny, are speaking under the noses of of the Kif, like totally amoral people, and trying to bring in some of their own people. It's like, why are you working with these guys? And so they're so they're giving them the speech, kind of you know, well, be our allies for now while it's convenient, knowing that you know the Kif would hear this and be like. What other kind of ally is there? 
one thing that we see in Spy in Spyglass Town is really ubiquitous uh, surveillance, like, and there's even sort of a local icon avatar of the surveillance, which is the prism that's floating over the city. If if a Spyglass community is maybe a single monolithic structure, I'm imagining that this prism is like the spaceship that's the eye, the dot over the eye spinning there slowly. It's perhaps perhaps a cartoonish exaggeration, but. I really don't know where I'm going with this. And I'm going to rewind that entire paragraph. I'm so sorry. You had me thinking about the rotating hand in uh, Logan's run. Or there is literally something called the eye and seven eaves, which rotates around a big spaceship ring. Okay. Well, I'm not rewinding this statement. (laughs) Um, Maybe. I don't know. But uh, Pulse, uh, Pulse, Spyglass is is very hands-off. And the management is also kind of distant and separate. They tend to isolate themselves along with their crew in a floaty orby thing that drifts over or near the town or is settled amongst the buildings of the town or something. But it's it's separate. It's just there. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's go team. Um, and sometimes these prisms, they're called, will launch to defend the city. And it's very exciting. And everybody applauds. And the company gets a lot of sting for this. Are you saying prisms or prisons? Prisms with an M, as in Mary. That changes everything. Yeah, no, flying space prisms is not a thing. <laughs> no. um, I'm sorry. Um, or sometimes they hide behind the, the, the uh, spyglass expecting an attack, and rather than launching the defense of the city, they nest the prism inside the city and hide behind their crew and say, you're not going to kill these thousands of innocent individuals, are you? And I, the answer is usually no, because nobody wants that on their... Is that innocent and giant quotation marks? No more or no less innocent than any other corporation. Fair enough. I think that's their motto. But yeah, the prism prisms. The prisms are um, both like corporate mascot advertisement and uh, presumably uh, surveillance device as while this thing is drifting around near your city. And bear in mind that a spyglass corp town might be three buildings in the middle of a much bigger corporation town. They, they tend to be given small tracts of land inside of others or adjoining others. Giving in the loosest sense of the word giving. Like, go away and we'll give you these buildings. Um, this this structure, this prism might be like right over your building looking down at you. Good neighbors. My notes are totally all over the place tonight. Can we talk about justice for a few minutes? Sure. Okay. Moving right from prisms to justice. Yeah, I know. It doesn't make any sense at all. So this, I guess this comes to the concept of Sing, which we really can't avoid talking about. We could uh, if we wanted to. Uh, yeah, but you keep bringing it up, so might oh. as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was going to try to transition to it nicely, but no. Just, uh, it's, 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 let's it's, sing about it. So Sing, you, you still haven't read Sound and Silence, have you? I've read bits and pieces. You know, we have a reputation to maintain. Yeah. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> the, three, the three listeners are going to be so shocked. Um, oh, no. So I think the concept of Sing has the distinction of being the very first item brought in from, like, the second edition, the new wave of uh, HSD. It was leaked when Seb was working on the early drafts of Sound and Silence as kind of part of the world that we hadn't explored before. Sound and Silence has an awful lot of, like, deep color text that really opens up and unpacks things. Sing is a social currency that Spyglass uses. And it's not like, as far as we know, it's not like money that you can use to buy a car. Maybe it is, but not specifically. Um, It's sort of the glue and lubrication that keeps society flowing in Spyglass. Bitcoin. Oh, no. (laughs) Bitcoin without any of the electronic bits. Ah. Or coin. Or coins. Yeah. Um, no, nothing like that. Um, it's 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 goodwill and um, knowing people and knowing that you're worth knowing and things like that. Um, in the con- and if you have enough of it, you maybe can't buy a car with it, but you could probably find someone who would quite happily give you your their car. Right, because you look good giving your car to the person that has the social influence. Some people in Spyglass actually make it their business just to cozy up to somebody outside the organization with enough power that they can kind of wheel wheel uh, wheel and deal that into their own their own thing um a lot of spyglasses weirder habits can be justified because they try and you know make good with their people and get thumbs up from them it's, it's a little bit of the kind of black mirror style social media appreciation uh, and spyglass kind of runs on this the story at the front of the spyglass chapter in Sound and Silence, talks about some poor newbie coming into town 
and he's got a gun like tucked into the back of his jorts or something like that. And his date, who's one of the signature characters in HSD, the kind of shape-shifting box, box, fox coyote bat, sees him and kind of cozens up to him and says, hi, big boy. And they get along pretty well, and they're on a date. And finally, she says, yeah, I mostly came to talk to you because I saw that you're having a gun and you're kind of carrying yourself like you're going to shoot someone or are afraid you have to. He says, well, my company made me because they're afraid. But it turns out that a lot of people will give newbies a lot of slack because welcoming people, being friendly, being the, the the nice guy that gives them the tour before they do something stupid is a way of building up social currency. So much is. That's one of the ways that Spyglass governs without actually governing is encouraging this network of things, this network of social, social exchange, um, which doesn't really cost them much. That's nice. I do kind of wonder if Sing is actually legitimately tracked, like in some digital way, or if it's purely an abstract concept, because it almost seems to have enough reality to be tracked in some cosmic accounting ledger. It's sounding a lot like uh, the social credit system we're seeing implemented in China, where there's just, due to the nature of it being so heavily monitored, you can just kind of track things. And it might have just been something that came up on the side as a someone's side project that someone else just went, that's a good idea. Let's see if we can make it bigger. Huh. And then it was just like, okay, so now we have all these numbers so we can tell exactly who is, is and is not worth knowing. Let's just give it to everyone and just not really tell them why, but just let's see what happens. Oh, so on the other hand, a- if there's anyone that would be able to go in and tinker around with those numbers, it would be people in Spyglass. Of course. Yeah, yeah. and you know they change things on the fly all the time, I'm sure. So I, I really don't know. I mean, for something that is at the heart of the company's identity, in see, this universe, it's got to be tracked. I'm going to go back and actually argue against that. That's something that... Where we're seeing it currently is in a very authoritative country, an authoritative government. That type of externally enforced system doesn't really make as much sense for a decentralized corporation spyglass. Now, that's something that you might definitely see on, say, Marsco, where it's maybe more of an employability matrix that isn't really too socially aggressive, but kind of just governs the everyday life of everybody in Marsco because that's just kind of the generic way of handling that many people. That might be something you see in Progenitus, where it would be covering a lot more of the social side because they are you know, space fascists, and that fits them pretty well. Do good, and we're going to measure how much good you're doing. But having that in Spyglass doesn't fit as much, be- very much because that's kind of that external structure that Spyglass is so hellbent on bucking, on not following. So just for clarification, this is regarding my saying that it must be tracked in some way because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. It's a little bit on both of those. Having the um, external social currency a la the way that China is doing currently and having that external tracking system, I don't think either of them really make as much sense because Spyglass is all about who you know, the community that you have, and the personal connections that you build. And just the layer on top of that is kind of the great game of Spyglass, of not only who you know, how you know them, and like what you know, but also how well you gauge where you fit in into the social structure and the network, and how influential you are, just like society and politics, that is what they're playing. And that is saying, that is their game. Well, I was going to use this as a way to kind of open up the idea of justice in Spyglass, which tends to be sort of a rough-and-ready frontier justice. But a real-world example of what you were discussing is uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, There are a lot of laws on the books where X, Y, or Z, and you die. Um, Steal cattle, and you die. Uh, Do something shamelessly gay, and you die. Um, But in practice, the and you die part was not necessarily enforced or not enforced all that regularly. Some of those laws on cattle rustling and fence cutting were still up until, I believe, the 80s or 90s in Texas. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, if you did a thing and it was a death penalty offense, chances are you'd just get put in the stocks or something like that. Or just, like, put in jail in the, like, cool down cell for three days or something like that. As long as you were generally an asset to the community... If you were worth more alive than dead to the community, and they know, the elders know, everybody knows, you're not going to get your head chopped off for some indiscretion with a, a boy or a cow or a cowboy. It's just not going to happen. You're going to get some 
tar and feather level punishment. Actually, tar and feather is pretty nasty. Um, but you're not going to get executed uh, because it's about establishing social norms, enforcing social norms, enforcing the currency, the currency, the community's expectations, not necessarily killing somebody just because they did a thing. True. Although that kind of fabric of society and structure of governance depended on almost a rabid exclusion of outsiders, the, the travelers that were coming through or people that were just entering that did not grow up there were outsiders and they did not stay. I mean, all evidence suggests that Spyglass is pretty insular, if nothing else, because there's such a sharp dividing line in terms of the way they conceptualize their culture versus the way everybody else does. Everybody else has a, an authoritarian mall cop watching over their shoulder all the time to make sure they are good moral citizens. Spyglass is a bunch of assassins and liars. It could be a bit like a... It could be in a bit... It could be a bit like an amoeba in a way, where each... <laughs> Hang on. Oh, okay, sorry. Go on. Sorry, I was just saying, like, there, there is a singular amoeba, and no one's going to say that an amoeba, uh, an amoeba is like five or six things. There is a nucleus. There is something that generally says, oh, yeah, hey, you should do this. But at the same time, each tentacle of the amoeba can go off and do its own thing. Like, we see this when they put, uh, when they're doing the train simulation in Japan, where they put the food at hot spots, and the amoeba just did its own thing till it had optimized the pathways between it. There was no centralized control over it, but it was one amoeba. What I'm seeing is, what I'm at least internalizing, is the sing is not, or could be a single thing that just kind of goes, if you have it, you're spyglass. Anyone can join. Once you have it, you can't leave. But outside of that, go off and do what what you're going to do. It could be... That idea could be taken as a metaphysical thing where it's not uniquely tracked. It's just kind of everyone knows their location within their arm of the amoeba. Or it is completely tracked where it's this is the cell wall of the amoeba and you can't really leave it because you're inside now and therefore you have it and you're part of it. It may be like Mao where if you think you know the rules, you're doing it wrong. Or it could have a much more base explanation which kind of fits with some of the original spyglass stuff which is it's basically just reddit and all of that social currency stuff is just karma and it doesn't really mean anything but boy the people inside sure are particular about uh, what their numbers are i guess it depends i mean if you're playing a spyglass focused game then sing is going to be a fairly important concept for you probably it's going to be um how you judge the, your mission's worth how you manage your company's standing and how you move upwards uh, if you're playing Incidental spyglass, maybe you have one or two spyglass people in your in your party. Not so important. Maybe it's a more blunt instrument at that point. And there's nothing to say that it necessarily has to be the same across every little cell of spyglass. Different groups could interpret saying differently or have different rules about how they work with it. But I do want to briefly focus on, okay, I want to go off on what you just said about going off in a different direction, but I want to keep keep focusing on justice so we kind of work through the concept just a little bit because uh, it's a major thing that differentiates Spyglass from the other corporations is how our laws enforced, quote, laws, unquote. It uh, tends to be like a local council, a local government or the wise, the wisdom or the boss or the don or something like that decides what's happening. And if you screw up somehow locally, you're likely to be put on a fairly short trial by one of those in front of a group like that. But this is an area of an an age of intense social media and social scrutiny. So no matter what happens, if that elder, that, that, that central figure makes a decision that goes against the community norms, he could be pilloried next. So both the judge is, the judge is being judged all the time. Being shadow banned. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. That actually might be the way they deal with people is they just like if everything is online social media, it's, well, your online presence just disappeared for everyone except for you. Congrats. (laughs) Deal with the fallout. Feels very ASR, too. I don't know. Then again, that has to come back to a centralized organization, which may or may not exist. There there is a a central organization. They just paint in very broad strokes and let people fill in the details on their own. It's the central Reddit server. (laughs) Everyone has an account. It's the admins. Even the mods don't know the admins, but they know they're out there. So something I stumbled across flipping through some of the the new 2.0 book is that Spyglass is, I'm about to say somewhat unique, somewhat unique 
in that they are experimenting with governmental structures. And that is unusual in Seoul because most people are post-governmental or would like to believe they are. Whereas Spyglass thinks the governments are kind of fun. And as maybe a bulwark against whatever is coming next or when this form of corporatocracy collapses, they are tinkering with other strange forms of governments like a Python-esque neo-cynicalist commune or some complex oligarchy ruled by a council of the wise or something like that. They establish these micro-governmental structures inside of, say, a megastructure building or three floors of a megastructure building. So in a lot of HSD, you have this well, social adaptability, social dexterity. I guess they kind of phase that out a little bit in second ed. But you used to have the um, community plus dexterity skill to see how you blend. And in Spyglass, that's I like that a lot. I kind of miss that one. It's still there. Um, in Spyglass, this is really challenged and challenging and important because uh, rules and regulations can shift on a dime. Um, but also entire governmental structures might be there. And you might think, oh, well, Spyglass is just anarchy slash libertarianism, but it's actually has all sorts of flavors depending on what the locals have chosen for themselves or what Spyglass itself has established. It's an anarchy of governmental systems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think if you want to have like a fun little like you're, you're – in a crunch, you've got to build some weird-ass encounter for your parties. You could go to Wikipedia's list of forms of government, uh, roll a 1D100, and then establish that inside of a spyglass uh, megastructure and say, you deal with this now. Suddenly, pornocracy, government by prostitutes, uh, or something like that. That would be interesting because you go through bureaucracy to uh, to bureaucracy to where you have to please the court gesture to get a oh gosh to get a appointment with the judge of the court or something like that. To oh man, the, the 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 gesture as go between with royalty or or the powers that be. So That's that, but then you also have to deal with the. My mother is calling me. Give me a moment. Okay. Bureaucracy, bureaucracy, pleasing the court jester so you can talk to the theocrats, so you can talk to the Council of the Wise, act as a go-between between all of those, and then you have to send a little small packet uh, via the vacuum tube system to the other side of the city oh. within 10 minutes, so I don't know. I look this very Gilliam-esque. The idea of theocrats turning up in your HSD campaign is a really weird one because the game is so fundamentally anti-theist. Yeah, well, yeah, but you said they were playing with a variety of yeah. ruling styles, and theocracies are, in fact, one of them. I want to throw out, I can't say the word, quillocracy. Quillocracy? Yeah, government by space wizards. I accept. Okay. Everybody's a space wizard. Yeah. No. <clears throat> no, 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 they aren't. Everybody would explode if they were space wizards. <laughs> There's kind of this recurring idea, I think is expressed a few different places in the books, where the people in a spyglass town believe that they are awake, that they are alive in a way that you don't get inside of, say, Mars Co. or a place where people have just done what the hierarchy has said they would be. And this is self, self-propagandizing, self self-aggrandizing, but it's true in some sense that spyglass towns do build their own cultures uh, from the ground up to whatever degree they can. Well, it also feeds into kind of the pressure release theory that I was floating earlier. Spyglass is generally made of people that are misfits and the other societies that just don't handle that level of organization or going along to get along type of bureaucracy, they go off and splinter off and land in spyglass where they've seen through the veil and they're smarter than the average drone. Talking about spyglass NPCs saying that the people in spyglass are awake is really just inviting the argument about unreliable narrators because, yes, mm. they're so woke. <laughs> <laughs> So let's briefly talk about paranoia, not the role-playing game. Um, Spyglass citizens are are described as being, quote, confidently paranoid, unquote, and they have a society where everybody is either scrupulously, dangerously honest or amazing liars and will tell you so. Uh, You never really know what version of the truth you're dealing with, so I guess you distrust everyone pretty much equally and that gets you to a fairly good place in the end? Do you remember Will Smith's uh, Enemy of the State? No. Okay, well, it's a movie, and it's kind of old. He he goes to a conspiracy theorist, paranoid-type ex-NSA guy who's just completely out there. But as the movie goes along, he's not actually completely out there, and everything he was paranoid about is just absolutely true. He's just—he was on the inside previously, and he knew what he was talking about. The 
the movie Cam makes a joke of the guy never looks up. He wears a hat and he never looks up because the satellites can grab your face and identify you and track you that way. Mm-hmm. He makes Will Smith's character strip as soon as he meets him and throws all of his clothes away because the NSA has already bugged his clothes eight ways to Sunday and tells him, turn off your cell phone, throw it away. And this is like in the early 90s when this stuff was not as widely known. So sure, they could be paranoid and they could be competently paranoid, but that's not to say that the mega corporations don't already have all that capability deployed that they're talking about. Or simply that nobody else is concerned about it anymore because we've all checked that box off and have given up on the idea of privacy entirely. Mm-hmm. Actually, that is one of the interesting things. If you are dealing with a society where you are ultra high tech, then, well, if you can make computers the size of they have a pin, you can just put a computer on anything. And anything that has more than a few chips, you're looking at some pretty substantial computing power. Not going to say anyone being competently paranoid is wrong. It's just... Have you checked your entire body for something about the size of a head of a pin? Or smaller? Pretty sure that's in the item list. I think it is. (laughs) So how do you put a heat sink on computing dust? Mm -hmm. Just sprinkle it. Yeah, make sure it's... Shake. (laughs) Shake and dust it. (laughs) Make sure it's spread far enough apart that whatever it's on doesn't burn. There you go. One kind of cute idea for, like, structuring spyglass cultures is, again, we we have these, like, vast... On Mars, like two mile high buildings that are filled with entire massive cities, like entire population of Seattle in one building. But they might be two or two cultures woven very tightly together that are you know, in in strong opposition. But because of the structure of spyglass buildings, they they have a lot of secret passages and fallow spaces. They're called these empty dead zones. Uh, they're constructed in ways that are just willfully difficult. You could have these two people, these two cultures, existing in close parallel for years without actually interacting. Um, you might even have a little enclave that may not know they're a little enclave because I mean, that sort of thing is possible. People don't leave these megastructures necessarily. You can't live your entire life there. It seems a little dull, even by HSC standards. But it's something like that is possible. So you could craft a number of very competitive experiments in, in one single vast megastructure or a cluster of like three or four. Oh, what was it? Uh, the book Maze Runner. You ever read it? That sounds familiar. Uh, the idea of they put a whole bunch of children in a effectively death maze and gave them the instruction of figure out the maze and get out. And then that figuring out the maze and getting out put them into an even bigger puzzle, which they had to figure out and get out of that. And that went into an even bigger puzzle. Uh, sorry, I'm spoiling this old book for y'all. I think they made movies out of it. They're not very good, but they are kind of fun. <laughs> Basically that idea where puzzles and puzzles and puzzles... Small enclaves and small enclaves that are now watching the inner small enclaves as uh, reality TV, which is being watched by a larger enclave as reality TV. (laughs) I kind of imagine like Pulse versus Spyglass as being two creepy kids. And one of them is kind of this creepy fat kid that's got a small hamster or some other sad life form that's doomed to die and just kind of pokes at it to see what it does. And that's Pulse. Whereas Spyglass has taken this creature and put it in a large empty doll house with like paper cut out dolls and left it on its own in confusion and despair. Uh, and that's kind of its game. So, so, so David Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. Pulse, okay. uh, Spyglass, definitely strong David Lynch vibes for me. You can also reference a little bit off to the uh, Fallout universe and Fallout mythos. One of the, while it's not really a forefront theme of the games within Fallout, you're always starting as a vault dweller that's coming back after a nuclear winter in the 50s. And for whatever reason, you have to crack the vault and go outside, usually for supplies or a broken part or whatever. But one of the underlying themes that you find in kind of this dystopia is that this isn't just a bunch of vaults that were created for um, nuclear survival of the species, but it was also a psychological experiment. Hmm. The different vaults that you start finding, the, the different notes and the reports on them start showing that every vault was kind of themed with a certain or seeded with a certain um, experiment that presumably the people of the future would come back and be able to look at. Maybe one vault would have nothing but children or one vault would have 49 women and one guy or another vault might have um, a broken water dispenser that only put out enough water for two people a day when there were 14 people in there. The book I'm remembering along these general lines is written by, I think, 
not Christian Slater, that's someone else, uh, Slater. Um, and it was, these kids were stuck in this, it was like maze, this maze of stairs where they kind of found each other in this big building that was just all these st- endless stairways. And at the bottom of it, there was a sp- food dispenser. Um, but to get it dispensed, they had to do this dance and gradually it more and more complicated. And the book kind of dissolved in Lord of the Flies with this occasional food dance thrown in. <laughs> But did they describe the food dance? And does it work? Yeah, they do. Um, and, but it's like little little meat cubes. Okay. Um, the dance is like little meat cubes? Or the food is little meat cubes? The, the little meat <laughs> cubes are dancing to get fed. <laughs> ah. The dance was, I remember, it was like swaying back and forth while sticking your tongue out. It was meant to be humiliating. Okay, some other stray themes. I think we're wrapping up vaguely soon. Um... Spyglass architecture, it's called uh, Mosaic Streets, they called it in the book. Uh, it's, it's this kind of crazy hodgepodge given by other companies, and then Spyglass itself builds on top of it in ways that just make no damn sense. So you don't really ever know where you're going or what sort of structure you're going to be facing or dealing with, and of course there are no maps. Visit a Spyglass town and you will be thankful for your local zoning board. <laughs> Strong culture of othering and paranoia, I think we've touched on that. Um... Oh, I like the idea of whisker buildings. Uh, they were talking about this in terms of spyglass architecture. We don't have megastructures so much in in our world, uh, so it's difficult to imagine what it's like living in a two-mile-high building where you don't actually ever have to see the sun. And spyglass tends to cluster, have clusters of these things that are, as I said, generously given to them by uh, blackmailed megacorporations, and they build little bridges between them. So they call it whisker whisker buildings or whisker walkways. So people can move between spyglass structures without ever setting foot in the IRPF-controlled regions below. That's kind of nice. At the same time, I mean, spyglass kind of represents a very fundamental threat to any other megacorporation's community that they're living near. Yeah. So... Keeping them away and separate and giving them their own little enclave off away from your happy population right. is very self-motivated, self-interest. Right, and this, although this kind of spins out in an area where no one really trusts each other anymore because they simply don't know each other, which is, you know, that kind of othering again. The threat of mob rule, but there isn't actually mob rule. Um, the mob wouldn't trust each other to rule. Well, no, they're, they're, okay, so they're, the spyglass is generally ruled by local forms of government, local, local strangeness, local, local agreements. And there may be some mob mentality, but it doesn't sound like it's any more than any other HSD town. Uh, but just that's more kind of the image that's put on display. Uh, people, you know, gunning people down in the street, which doesn't really happen. Um, they, they talk about the statistic of that spyglass has more civilian casualties than anybody else. But when you compare that to the number of IRPF killings in an IRPF-controlled area, it's about the same, maybe a little bit lower. Um, and that kind of goes back to the idealism of if you unfetter people from society and corporation, they will just be good and they will uh, self-measure each other. And and that's not... The tragedy of the commons is always there in my head when I'm thinking about spyglass but it isn't a closed system. It is a it is a a governed society with a power over it. So it's not not pure anarchy. That's true. Um, a delicate network of compromise. I have written here in my in my notes. Um, uh, maybe the Burning Man environment is a good comparison, where a lot of things are done with barter. But it's inside of a larger culture where money and money is exchanged for goods and services. But you can build a lot of goodwill by having brownies or special brownies or really special brownies. But you also have to kind of find that type of person that doesn't want to just go for a week or two weeks, but actually wants to live that life. and mm-hmm. Has an investment in the economy of favors. Yeah. I always found haggling kind of maddening. And I think that I personally would not enjoy Spyglass Land for any number of variations on that basic point. <laughs> If you're astute enough to like understand where you fit into the society and what kind of um, social currency you have at any given point, you know what the price is already. Yeah. You're, you're just kind of playing to get to the point where you agree. Right, right, right. Whereas in a pulse land, you have giant 1495 tags that flash. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really puts it at a point that doesn't necessarily resonate with a lot of gamers who don't have that type of social 
tuned inness. Yeah, it's just not part of American culture in many ways. So let's look briefly at some character types you might find while we kind of fight the clock. It seems like just in terms of basic PC classes, uh, your communication specialist, your espionage. Oh, oh, I have a list of uh, top 10 Reddit archetypes right here. Okay. Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> I can't tell. Yes. Uh, espionage artists, uh, cat burglars are going to be kind of the, kind of the standard like PC adventurer types. Died of the wall contrarian. Yeah, God, a crank. That sounds good. Social media experts in general would probably be fairly useful. Anybody that can either get the truth out or find it themselves. Agitator, provocateur. Yeah. You know, I bet a TTI uh, Scully and a, a pulse a Spyglass Mulder would be a really good pair. Or maybe the other way around. No, no that's... I could see that. But in Sound and Silence, they do discuss a couple of recurring character types that you might encounter. Independence, and these are people who have just called themselves a spyglass agent and sell their secrets to them when they find them. So if anyone calls themselves a spyglass agent, they're not a spyglass agent. Oh, poof. you got to wear the badge Which somewhere. means they might be a spyglass agent. <laughs> Look, people wear the prism. It's done. If you can tell if they're a spyglass For agent or not, you're worthy to talk to them. Guys... <laughs> Dogs. Uh, wayfinders. These are break-in specialists that uh, find holes in security and let the right people know how to leverage them or at least build up the trust networks to make those uh, buildings more accessible and to make secrets that are worth selling. Which are crazy useful NPCs to have available for your party. Right. Actually, it seems like a kind of a dull role for a PC. I mean, finding your way in is exciting, but what do you do with that afterwards? It would be a little bit dull. Especially if the rest of the party isn't looped in and the GM is not preparing specifically around yeah. that. I, I can all agree with that one because there are some instances where I've run games where it was, there's a flaw in the system, find it and exploit it. Or I've had bad DMs in Dungeons and Dragons in the past where it was, I found a hole in your system and you're not going to admit it. So I'm going to exploit the ever-living hell out of it uh, and let the players in on the secrets so that we can all have some fun at your expense. Well, that's not kind. Or playing like a sci-fi game where one of your players is a hacker, but you just don't have anything in cyberspace that was ever set up or intended. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, sorry. No, that's, that's fair. Luckily, we have second ed now, so. Yeah. Uh, whistleblowers, that's part of uh, Spyglass's proud legacy of exposing corporate secrets and uh, encouraging honesty and fair dealing. And I think the whistleblower, the whistleblower archetype is really at the center of like, the Spyglass mythology. It's still a very important aspect of them. It's their public-facing good. Issue consultants, these are fixers, uh, surgically precise merc teams that solve problems for other people, a.k.a. PC groups. The most efficient way, solving problems the most efficient way possible, which doesn't necessarily mean assassination. Uh, hands. Hands are personal assistance to powerful people, which only makes sense in the context of a world where you have social currency as an important thing. They do specify that while there are assassins in Pulse and Spyglass, that's not actually an important thing. But I think the assassin with the heart of gold is probably a trope that's going to be recurring once or twice out there. Well, the hand or the the personal assistant for other people in power is a certain amount of insurance against Spyglass. If Spyglass already knows that they have someone in at the upper echelons of power and it's kind of keeping an eye on things, they're not as aggressively going to prob be probing into everything that that corporation or that group is doing. So You get low-key surveillance all the time or focus surveillance when you're up to something. Your choice. Yeah. I think the general summary of like all spyglass interactions is never trust organizations, trust individuals, and that's kind of where they are in terms of what they build from and what they build up from. And yet they find governments interesting. As experiments. Okay. They don't trust them, they just find them interesting. It's the like, governments have no power. Power's in the people. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Pulse has sports. Spyglass props up governments and tears them back down. <laughs> Pulse has sports. Spyglass has coup. <laughs> <laughs> there comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. Okay, so let's wrap up this talk with a brief overview of what the hosts have found awesome this week. Uh, I'll start with The Secrets of Blackmore. This launched on Kickstarter in December-ish, uh, and now it is on Vimeo. This is a 
documentary about the true history of Dungeons and Dragons, more or less, I guess, possibly. Its main point of view character is Rob Kuntz, who is one of the players of the original Greyhawk setting and a game designer in his own right. He has a byline in Deities and Demigods First Ed. In general, this seems to be kind of a demythalization of the Gygax legend and telling kind of the truth behind it. As a gamer, I kind of want them to be kind to Gygax as well, but one knows that a lot of intellectual property got eaten and burned up in that firestorm back in the day, and that the transition between like 1973 and 1975 was not just the red box coming out, but a lot of blood, so to speak, metaphorically. Uh, so that's out on Vimeo now. Sounds kind of neat. Never investigate your heroes. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. <laughs> you can investigate Gygax. It was actually kind of interesting. Party animal. <laughs> Uh, self-destructing polymer. That was fun. I've seen this one chatted about on the HSD discord chats. Uh, this is a rugged plastic that can be used to make things like parachutes and hand gliders and ammunition cases and what have you. But with the press of a button and or exposure to sunlight, it dissolves into liquid quite rapidly. This is not over the period of weeks, but over the period of seconds. Why would you want to make a hang glider out of something that dissolves when exposed to sunlight? Well, if you're a ninja, if you're flying in at night. So the hang glider during the day would be a really bad investment. Yeah. I, will, I will allow that. But the packaging for the hang glider could dissolve, and you could like run out, and suddenly the package dissolves, and you're carrying this hang glider. Oh, fun. Yeah, a really mysterious suicide. <laughs> Uh, the one question I have about this polymer is, is it always like lemony yellow? Because all the pictures I've seen of it have been lemony yellow, and I don't find that color attractive. It should be found up black. Well, you, you, can paint, you could paint it, and then after it dissolves, you'd have the empty shell of paint around well, what, where it used to be. Yeah, that's <laughs> an weird. interesting question, partly because uh, the pigments they use uh, can have detrimental effects to the dissolving ability, like the black that everyone loves to use is carbon black, and they explicitly use that in plastics that are going to be exposed to the sun because it right. absorbs the UV rays before it can degrade the plastic. Whereas if the heat increases too much, it might melt the plastic instantly. Well, yeah. <laughs> True. But then the, the carbon black actually also helps that because it's a stabilizing compound. So it keeps it stable for longer and keeps it from being damaged for longer. The uh, the large water reservoir where they covered in those half-water-filled balls, right, they used right. explicitly carbon black because any other pigment degrades too fast. Interesting. And then the balls degrade really fast. Uh, the Europa Clipper. NASA is planning a trip to Europa in 2025-ish. That'll be fun. Yeah, so horrible things under the water. Actually, when you look at the mythology of HSD, the whole transcendent culture slash Hydra was discovered on Earth. Hmm. So maybe this is our entry into sci-fi at this point, and we hmm. all die soon. We don't know when the HSD timeline actually begins. Kind of interesting article from a British science fiction magazine. No, sorry, let me try that again. Kind of fun article about astronomy, uh, starting with the Carl Sagan Institute, where scientist Lisa Kalanegger has an idea of using bioluminescence to identify planets, exoplanets that may have life. Which because it would have different spectral emissions? I, I thought that at first, and that seems kind of challenging because it's not very much light. But what she's talking about is biofluorescence, is protective biofluorescence. So when, when the sun hits something that has the right sort of bioluminescent structure, it phosphors in a way that denatures some of the UV. So it changes the UV signal signature of reflect, reflected light, as I understand it, and I may be just guessing wildly. I don't know if this is actually practicable or just a really neat idea. I don't know. But that was a, an interesting article, if nothing else, and it had lots of pictures of glowing algae, which is probably off topic. Are you looking for a thing or just... No. Uh, one of my friends found out about it, one of the recent Telegram updates. Uh, if you send a heart emoji to someone, it's really big. And if you press on it, it uh, your phone vibrates as a heartbeat. Oh, that's twee. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that's it for this this week. Uh, if we're able to record another episode this month, and I can't promise that one because it's our convention it's, it's season. One, yeah. yeah. Uh, Wines and I are both staffing uh, Alamo City Free Invasion. Come in. Oh, I'm sorry. Wines and YT and I are all staffing Alamo City Furry Invasion. Uh, so please come and visit. Um, if you come, you will see me. That's true. That's true. Uh, 
Obviously, all of us. No wines. He hides behind lighting. Um, hiding in plain sight in the main ballroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if we can't make it, we're sorry. We'll see you in October. If we can, then it'll probably be on architecture, I think. Kind of tangentially relevant to the spyglass world. Uh, so until then, catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 